Keywords in Play. You're listening to Keywords in Play, an interview series about game research supported by Critical Distance and the Digital Games Research Association. As a joint venture, Keywords in Play expands Critical Distance's commitment to innovative writing and research about games, while using a conversational style to bring new and diverse scholarship to a wider audience. This episode's keyword is resistance, and today I'm talking to Jamie Woodcock, who has recently written the book Marks at the Arcade, and has also done a lot of other research in unionization and labor struggle in video games and also a lot of other areas. Yeah, thank you so much. It's, it's really lovely to come and, uh, come and talk to you. So I'm, I'm based at the Open University, and broadly speaking, I research work. So I have a kind of longer running project, which has been going on for a few years now with video game workers in the UK. But I've also been studying the gig economy. So platforms like Uber and Deliveroo and, you know, other kinds of low waged work, call center work, cleaning and so on. So, you know, I guess my kind of academic interest is in understanding work. You know, particularly with video games, I think, you know, if we look at them from the perspective of work, it can tell us a whole number of uh, of broader things that opens up a whole number of questions, which I think are, are really interesting. Your recent research has kind of focused on um, the emergence of Game Workers Unite in the UK over the past few years. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a kind of it's an academic project, but it's also been an organizing project. I, I think it was about 2016. Um, I wrote an article about whether or not you know, in all these kind of wonderful ways, you write something at the time and then you look back on it quite differently. So I wrote, I wrote a paper about whether or not there could be like a wave of unionization in the in the video games industry and finished it by saying, you know, there's clearly loads of things that people could organize around. There's lots of issues, there's lots of grievances, but things are kind of not not quite there yet. And then, you know, a year or two after that, a group of game workers got together at GDC in, in California and had a panel about organizing in the video games industry uh, this was shut down by people organizing the the conference in what they would probably look back on now as a really not great way to shut down a discussion about about unionizing. Uh, and a friend of mine put me in touch with someone in the UK uh, who said he was interested in in organizing a union and the, the kind of project developed from there. So, you know, we met, we talked, we did interviews, but I also put them in touch with a union that I do some research with and we had a kind of, I guess you call it participatory uh, project together. And, you know, now they have a uh, a union branch and in the video games industry in the UK. That's really great because I've kind of been paying attention to how that's emerged over the past few years as well. But do you have like a, a longer like history of how the video games industry emerged in the UK and how that kind of created, you know, specific situations or specific challenges in how it had to be organized? It's a really good question because I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, still today talk about the video games industry as you know, a really new or like emerging industry. Um, and in the UK, much like in in the US or in, in other parts of Europe or Japan, you know, has has quite a long history now. You know, we're not talking about something that emerged five or 10 years ago. And in the book that I wrote, I draw a lot on on Nick Dyer-Witherford and, and Greg Deputa's work on kind of where the video games industry comes from. And, you know, a lot of this is people who were working in the military industrial complex in various ways or, or working for corporations and finding ways to do more interesting thing with things with the high-tech uh, equipment that they had. 
my dad is a, a software engineer and I spoke to him about this and said, you know, did you, you know, did you ever come across stuff like this, you know, when you were a student or, or so on? And he told me a story, which I think uh, sums up some of these things quite nicely is he said, when he was a student, they were being trained to produce industrial calendars for factories. So they were writing software to make sure that factories were using their equipment as much as they could. And instead of you know, doing this task as students, they found a way to get the, the hardware to play a golf game. <laughs> and, you know, when he describes it, you know, it's like this wasn't a screen. This was a bit of paper that was coming out the other side. And they found a way to get it to pull the paper back in so you could kind of sketch out the the, the path of the golf, the golf ball. By all accounts, it wasn't the most fun game. Um, you know, it was pretty, pretty basic, but they got a huge amount of enjoyment out of it you know, of doing something that was not what it was meant to be used for and so on. And, you know, the broader history of video games has lots of examples of things like this, of, you know, people who are meant to be plotting missile trajectories, finding ways to play basic games. And so there's a kind of tension that runs throughout the video games industry of, you know, these kind of impulses to do something different or to, to find a different way of doing things that then people uh, who own those machines see the potential of selling these things to other people. And so you get these kind of waves of reincorporation of a kind of hacker spirit, I guess. And so, you know, the, the British video games industry, in a sense, begins in some of those same ways of people finding different ways to use hardware. And then, you know, you, you flash forward to today and you have uh, tens of thousands of people uh, working in the video games industry in the UK. Some of the biggest companies, well, you know, Rockstar is a, a, a British company in a way. I mean, it's obviously not at the same time. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that has a, uh, a headquarters in, in, in Edinburgh. So, you know, you have come a long way from, from people mucking around with industrial calendars to media commodities that make vast, vast amounts of money. Yeah. And I think that kind of those issues of like scale and also the really complicated supply chains that kind of go into these, these things, that's obviously an element of, you know, how technological it is as an industry it kind of relates to some of your previous work in that way because it was focused on like you know call centers or people who were working for various courier apps so were there like elements of that type of working that you could easily relate or carry over to looking into how things were in the video games industry or were there kind of also some surprising differences in how things were conducted yeah, I think that's a really good question. I mean, I think call center work, you know, summarizes a kind of much broader history of outsourcing. So, you know, in the UK, uh, outsourced call centers are seen as like the example of outsourcing, having Indian call centers to call up when things go wrong with the service or, or, or so on. So, yeah, I've always been really interested in in how kind of labor is distributed and shifted across national boundaries, I guess. And it's kind of why I joke about you know, Rockstar being both a British company and then it's obviously not a British company, is it has studios all over the world, parts of its work are outsourced globally. And of course, there are no video games consoles made in Scotland. And so if you try and make sense of video game work, you have to try and understand like where uh, where's the hardware being made? How does the you know, how do the supply chains bring all these things together at just the right moment so you can play, you know, Grand Theft Auto? And so I think, you know, video game work, in a sense, becomes like a stepping off point into understanding how contemporary capitalism has changed. Uh, it kind of traces out 
those divisions between material and less material work, new global logistics supply chains, you know, you get a kind of uh, a different angle on on understanding how capitalism has changed. In one of your papers that recently came out, or maybe you have said it in a few of the papers that you've written about the game workers unite unionization, the main issues that a lot of people in these unions are trying to organize these unions felt that they were affected by were on the one hand crunch, so kind of a lot of overtime working conditions, and also cultures of sexism or harassment or those kinds of things in the workplace. You know, it's it's really good that these unions have emerged and it's kind of early days and, you know, seeing to what degree they can sort out and improve those issues. But like you said, there's also so many issues that kind of get spread out internationally with like the supply chains and things being outsourced. Do you think that unionization can kind of increase attention and action on these things internationally as well? One of the key things about people organizing a union is it brings visibility. When people stand up and they, you know, raise a, a grievance or they make a demand, it tells us something about that industry. One of the interesting discussions that I've been involved with since the game workers joined the IWGB, which is a kind of small alternative union in the UK, is seeing those workers in conversation with delivery riders or Uber drivers or cleaners or security guards or so on. Is Lots of people in other industries would think that, you know, there are no problems in the video games industry. People go to work and they make and play video games and they, you know, have a kitchen stocked with things. So they, it doesn't matter if they work late or whatever. Is There's a really interesting conversation with people finding out about each other's conditions. For too many people, trade unions are seen as a thing that talks just about wages. So, you know, if you want to pay rise, you know, a union is 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 the thing that you can go to for that. Mm-hmm. And like, while pay is like obviously really important, you know, for many people, differences in pay can reshape aspects of their lives and can really change things. And, you know, a lot of IWGB members fight for, for living wage campaigns and so on. What's always really important in those campaigns are the other aspects. How much control do you have over your work? Are you treated with dignity? Game worker organizing has started not from a, an issue around pay, but issues around control. So Crunch, for example, which of course academics would know nothing about, <laughs> where to yeah. make our book deadlines on time and so on, is essentially about who controls the work. Um, how many people are hired to work on a project? What are the deadlines? Is it being mismanaged? You know, these things are a kind of demand around changing how the work is organized. And this is something that Marx would have been no no stranger to the idea of the length of the working day being made longer to exploit people more. You know, <laughs> this isn't a particularly kind of new phenomena. But I also think, you know, the, the questions around diversity in the industry, around oppression, you know, particularly around sexism is, you know, again, people saying, you know, I went into this industry for, for one reason or another, you know, often because I'm passionate about the medium and I've been treated terribly or I've seen people treated terribly. And so again, it's a kind of, it's a a challenge about who runs the industry and how they run it. So I think both those issues that have really driven game worker organizing are bigger discussions about work and about the kind of work that people want to have. So, you know, they can be very powerful, you know, just like demanding more, more in terms of wages or or, or a better pension or so on. Yeah, I guess um, a way that I felt your book was split up was kind of the very practical elements of like, you know, this is how the desire for unionization emerged in the UK games industry. And, you know, this is kind of how it happened. And then you also see what Marx's concepts can kind of lend to how we analyze video games and understand them. 
both in terms of, you know, the functions they fill in our lives and the kind of fictions or scenarios that they present. You talk about more like mainstream genres like first person shooters, which are obviously like kind of heavily going off of military and imperialist culture. Um, there's, you know, always a really good example of, you know, the latest COD game doing something crazy with that. But also there's kind of experimental and more um, kind of explicitly political games like uh, Phone Story and um, Corbin Run. Are there any particularly interesting examples that you didn't get a chance to include in the book or that came up after it was finished that you have been thinking about recently? This is always the way these things happen when you write something is then there are like loads of other examples that come out yeah. <laughs> after you finish writing and you think, you know, if only I could have included them. I mean, I guess the first thing to say is, you know, I, I was kind of interested in thinking about what Marxism can tell us about about video games because you know i'm a marxist you know i use marx in in my work but i also grew up playing video games you know i grew up playing civilization and counter-strike and you know these are things that i wanted to try and make sense of in terms of my own politics and of, of how we analyze them you know we can critique things like civilization or, or, or first person shooters quite easily there's also a question about like how these things are so popular, you know, what effect they kind of have on the conversations and the discussions we have about our society. And so one of the things I really wanted to do was to, to put forward a kind of positive critique of video games. Drawing on people like Stuart Hall's work, I think, is really useful here. You know, being interested in culture because it's where people's ideas about the world circulate. And so, you know, part of that is what other things can we do with games? You know, what other futures or other ways of, of, of thinking about society can we bring through games? And, you know, I think Phone Story is a fantastic example of using games to make a political intervention. You know, like we were saying earlier, to talk about the supply chain, to visibilize things, to, to kind of engage people in it. And, you know, I think Corbin Run is, again, an intervention. But I think, you know, in a way, we can think about those as like games that like have politics in the title, at least Corbin Run. There's nothing political about the dynamics necessarily. You know, it's a good bit of propaganda. And so one of the things we tried to do after we published the book is we ran a game jam with the editor of a journal called Notes from Below. And we ran a kind of joint game jam between the journal and, and Game Workers Unite in the UK. And we made games about organizing. What I really liked about this project was we got some organizers who knew nothing about video games to have a go at making games. Um, and we got video game workers who were trying to learn how to organize to think about what those dynamics might look like in a game. So, you know, thinking of how you abstract rules from organizing or try and put forward ideas about organizing, but through a medium that people can engage with really easily. And there's some really lovely examples. Somebody made a game based on the IWW organizer handbook where you kind of go around a workplace and talk to people and then categorize them as supporters or, or, or threats or whatever. Those kinds of experiments, I think, uh, are really interesting. And I think, you know, particularly now to make a very basic game, you know, which is, of course, no comment on how hard the work is that many game workers do, it's very easy for somebody to make a short game today. And we see that with the kind of huge explosion of indie games. And I think, you know, these are things the left should engage with, you know, other forms of media the left was serious mm -hmm. about engaging with, you know, whether it was theater or, 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 or printed press or, or film or whatever. Yeah, I kind of think about like Bitsy Games, which is this like very small, limited game engine. It kind of functions as, you know, a very easy way to almost make these kind of pamphlet or zine-like things that can just be put up anywhere on the internet. 
Yeah, it is worth paying attention to on those forums as like, you know, kind of an expressive and political spot that a lot of people are getting into that wouldn't necessarily consider themselves video game professionals, but they're still doing that work in a sense. Yeah, and I think there are other people who are really interested in video games with a political aim. And, you know, most of those people who have been interested in in politics with a political aim have come from a very different starting point. And, you know, this is a point that I really try to make in the book that, you know, the left should be interested in video games because people are. Uh, And it's a terrain of, you know, ideological debate and discussion. And it's one that the left, like mostly, is not present on. And, you know, we can see some of the events in the US today, you know, the polarization of of American politics, the election of Trump, as having been able to successfully mobilize a right that, you know, didn't exist in the same way it did before and was cultivated in part online and is now mm-hmm. increasingly kind of entering into street politics. Um, and so, you know, the example that, that I use in the book for this is Steve Bannon in a previous life running a, a World of Warcraft gold farming uh, company and selling things to American consumers. And in the process, you know, speaking to lots of young American men and finding that to be a fertile ground to test out and to to develop that kind of online alt-right politics. And so, you know, the argument in the book is that like, you know, whether whether you think video games are good or bad or useful or fun or whatever, they matter for politics because they're a form of media that people care about and engage with. By not engaging in it, you know, doesn't mean that people aren't going to have political discussions in them, you know, they will have them and they won't be the kind of discussions that will lead to a better world. Yeah, I guess that's something that they point out in that um, Games of Empire book is that the gold farming was was not only just like Steve Bannon's hustle in um, World of Warcraft, but it was, it became very entangled with like a lot of rhetoric about racist depictions of Chinese people and also this kind of hostility towards like outsourced labor, you know, because you're supposed to kind of make all of the gold within the game, not, you know, buy it from outside of the game, rather than like, kind of seeing that as, you know, you should you should care about the working conditions of people whose work is outsourced or are doing the outsourced work. So yeah, it's really interesting. And yeah, I think it's definitely worth caring about and paying attention to on multiple levels. But I think I think what can be hard about it for some people is that it really has a weird like even just video games, not considering like video game work, it kind of has this very weird relationship to both work and like free time um, because it's ostensibly something you do that's recreational, but it can be very capitalist labor market in its mindset in terms of like what kind of behaviors it encourages and, you know, what kinds of things it rewards. Where do you kind of see this ambiguous role of video games going for, for both players and for the people who work on them in the future? And it's a big, it's a big question. I think there's something fascinating, bleak and fascinating about the kind of recreation of elements of work in video games as part of like a leisure activity. So, you know, the, the number of games now you can play that are literal jobs, so like, you know, emergency dispatchers and truck drivers and so on. And, you know, I, I'm a, a big fan of Destiny. And I know that when I, you know, when I play Destiny, I make a list of all the things I need to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I check them off. You know, I, I, I see points increase. You know, I get a satisfaction from it. And I kind of, you know, as somebody who writes critical things about work, I like know what it's doing. You know, I, I like get the gamification, those aspects of points and so on. But yet we still have like a desire to engage with these things. And, you know, one of the things I've written with a colleague, Mark Johnson, is, 
is some stuff about the kind of drawer of gamification. Because I think, you know, capital has learned that people like to engage with games, you know, like those kind of systems, the feeling of progression and so on. And, you know, have abstracted out many of those things to use in the workplace. Call centers are an early example of these forms of gamification. What we argue in, in a paper about gamification is, you know, that is stripping out all the things that are good about games and using them to exploit people. And we should be deeply worried about and oppose the gamification of work because work, you know, is something we have to do and we shouldn't be made to feel that we have to enjoy it while <laughs> we're selling life insurance to people that don't want it or whatever we're doing. But, you know, on the flip side, there is still that kind of drawer of gamification from below, as it were. Like in the call center, I would muck around with people and we'd make up games to pass the time. People use their own versions of gamification to get through things. You know, I finish a chapter of of writing something, I'll go and do something nice or, or, or whatever. And so I think the kind of future of video games is one that's tied into those dynamics too, of like people finding new and exciting and radical things to do with technology and, you know, creating new experiences. And then that dynamic of capture from from capital, of finding ways to package this up and sell it back to you and try and extract value from, from video games in various ways. But I think the most exciting thing for thinking about the future of both the industry of gameplay, of, of, of work in the industry, is people saying, I don't like the way this is. You know, I'm going to join a union. I'm going to organize my coworkers. I'm going to make demands about how I want things to be. Because I think it's been quite difficult to see how you get out of the toxicity of many gameplay communities, of the difficulty of organizing in lots of these places. But now there is the possibility of workers making demands and reshaping things. And I think that could fundamentally reshape what the industry looks like. Because, you know, in many of these companies, you know, many of the people that make games like COD or, or GTA or whatever it is, don't want to make games that allow toxic communities to happen. But companies don't want to interrupt these things because they're making money from it. So, you know, workers' power has the potential to shape not only the conditions in the industry, not only the way our communities are you know, stewarded and managed and so on, but also the kind of games we play. Um, and that's what I think is really exciting about it. That's great. Is there any last things that you want to say that you're working on now or have coming up soon? I mean, I guess the first thing is I don't, I don't think I've said the name of the book. So the book is called Marks at the Arcade um, and it's available from Haymarket, which is a, a US publisher. The Game Jam, both of the Game Jams can be found on, on the Notes From Below website. Um, and so people can, can play them there. Uh, there's also an extract of the book that you can, you can read for, for free. All right, great. It was really nice talking to you. And yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Keywords in Play. For more great ideas around games, check out criticaldistance.com or take a dive into the Digra archives at digra.com.